The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. The word of God speaks to us. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word to us. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you all. To those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the privilege and joy of serving as one of the pastors here at uh, Frontline. And we thought in uh, honor of Halloween, we'd pick a scary text for you guys. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Yeah. It's a cheap, broad laugh, but I'm not ashamed. I'll take all the laughs I can get today. This, joking aside, this is a heavy text, um, but, but God is so kind to us. This is why we preach through books of the Bible a verse at a time, because these aren't passages that ever get nominated by committee in a meeting. And uh, so we're unafraid of what God has to say to us because we know he's good and he's kind. Pray with me over this text. Lord, we need your help. We need your help as we hear hard words from you that have impacted every one of us in this room in some way. We invite your Spirit's presence. We don't undertake this time together lightly. Speak to us through your word. Give us fresh hope and joy in you. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Some of you may have seen this month the singer Adele talked about her recent divorce for Vogue's cover story. She said in that interview, I was just going through the motions. I wasn't happy. Neither of us did anything wrong. Neither of us hurt each other or anything like that. I've just been on my journey to find my true happiness ever since. In 1910, only one in every ten marriages ended in divorce. By 1920, it had risen to one in seven. By 1940, it was one in six. By 1960, One out of every four marriages ended in divorce. By 1970, it had gone up to one in three. By the year 2000, one out of every two marriages ended in divorce. And today, closer to two out of three marriages end in divorce. I don't need to tell you that we're living in an age where more than ever we need to hear Jesus' teaching here in Mark 10 on the divine design for marriage as a sacred, lifelong commitment between a man and a man. And a woman. On the other hand, before we begin digging in to what Jesus has to say to us about marriage and divorce, it's important 
for me to first speak to the stigma and the shame that divorced people live with, particularly in the church. Sam Storms has wisely pointed out how tragic and wrong it is when divorced people are kept at arm's length or held in contempt or viewed with suspicion, maybe even viewed as second-class Christians in some way, treated as if they've committed the unpardonable sin, which they certainly have not. Because of the public nature of divorce, because of the incredibly painful impact that it brings, divorced people, understandably, feel extraordinarily vulnerable to these things. Should go without saying, there are no second-class Christians in this room. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And while as Christians we're called to honor marriage as sacred and worth fighting for with every fiber of our being, we also must never dishonor those who've experienced the fallout that comes from divorce. God's calling us to stress the permanence of marriage. But he's also calling us to never condemn the divorced. Nobody in this church should ever feel like they're walking around with a scarlet letter on their chest, D for divorce. As we step into this, God's calling us both to obedience to his word and to compassion towards our brothers and sisters. Now, let me say something about the task in front of us. There are at least two ditches that I need to avoid here today with you. One would be to just tell you what I think the Bible says without showing you my work and letting you check my math. That would be a cop-out and unhelpful. We need to actually dig into the text as much as we can with the time that we have and see what it says. God's word should persuade you, not mine. But on the other hand, the other ditch would be pretending that I could answer all your questions or exhaust what scripture has to say about marriage and divorce in one sermon. It's just not possible. My hope is that after we're finished here today, you'll take to heart the meaningful reality that you still need to invite your pastors and your deacons, your community group leaders, counselors, other trusted believers, and in cases of abuse, the authorities, into your story to help you thoughtfully and prayerfully discern the next steps you need to take for the place in which you find yourself. Does all that make sense? Okay. So, what does the Bible have to say about grounds for divorce, if any? What does the Bible have to say about grounds for remarriage, if any? There's a wide range of answers to both those questions. And some of you might be surprised to know that even among good Christian scholars who love Jesus and are fully submitted to the authority of Scripture, there's a wide range of views. So that means that whatever views we arrive at, we've got to hold them with charity and humility. First thing I want you to see in our text is that divorce is never required or prescribed for God's people. Look again at verses 1 through 5. Divorce is never prescribed for God's people. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
Notice there in verse 1, as was his custom, he taught them. He taught them. One of the greatest hidden wounds that a parent can give their child is to give them no guidance. They may not use harsh words or tear their children down, which is good, but they may also fail to teach and to counsel. And here Jesus is reflecting the kind heart of God the Father in that it's always his reflexive habit to teach the people. What's the good life? Where does danger lie? How can I find peace? What does obedience to God look like? And notice that it's in that context of Jesus compassionately teaching the people that, verse 2, the Pharisees came up in order to test him. Luke eleven fifty four describes these religious leaders as people who are constantly, quote, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. He came to teach them. They've come to test him. This is true for all of us. Humble people are often eager to be taught by Jesus, and proud and self-righteous people are often eager to test Jesus. So it's good for you to ask yourself honestly this afternoon, when it comes to questions around marriage and divorce, are you submitting yourself to the wisdom and kindness of God? Do you primarily bring your questions to God to be taught by him or to test him? Verse 2, they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? As you know, almost every single person in this room has been touched by divorce in some way, and if you haven't, you probably will. Maybe you have a divorce in your past. Maybe you're the child of divorce. Maybe you're watching one of your friends go through divorce. Maybe one of your own grown children has gone through divorce. Maybe you yourself are here today wrestling with whether or not to get a divorce, and your spouse has no idea. Now, why do they choose this particular question to try and trap Jesus? They're possibly doing this to try to bait him into offending his followers by going against the popular liberal view on divorce of that day. There were two broad schools of thought on divorce in Jesus' day, and the Pharisees are trying to get him to weigh in on this controversial question in front of an audience in the hopes that it'll do damage to his reputation. We'll come back to that in a second. Notice what Jesus does. As he so often does when he knows the motives of those asking an insincere question, he answers their question with a question of his own. Verse 3, what did Moses command you? Moses, for those of you who don't know, the one who led the Jews out of slavery in Egypt as told in the book of Exodus in the Older Testament. And Jesus is using his name here as shorthand to refer to all the instructions God gave to Moses to give to the Jews after leading them out of Egypt, referred to throughout the Bible as the law or the Mosaic law or simply Moses. So verse 4, they respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus and the Pharisees both know the passage to which they're referring. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Notice what it says. A man who takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Verse 4, notice that they describe what Moses allowed. What Moses allowed. Moses Knowing that divorce was an already present 
cultural reality, moved to protect the wife from deprivation, and at least provide her with the possibility of remarriage, and therefore instructs that she be issued a certificate of divorce. So she's not left in some horrible limbo state between singleness and marriage that deprives her of the benefits of both at once. We just saw that she was described as being put out of his house because it would have been much more typical for him to be a homeowner and for her to be out on the street and therefore put in a very difficult and vulnerable place in that day and age. Now, back to the two schools of thought. The conservative school of thought about divorce focused on the phrase there in Deuteronomy 24.1 that's translated, some indecency. And they interpreted it accurately as a reference to sexually immoral behavior. Now, the liberal school of thought on divorce focused on a different phrase earlier in Deuteronomy 24.1, finds no favor in his eyes. And so they taught, bizarrely, that divorce was allowed in any situation where a husband might become displeased with his wife even something as petty as her burning his breakfast, which is an actual recorded instance in the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. And we have a clue that the liberal view was probably far more popular in Jesus' day because in the parallel account to our passage here in Mark, in Matthew's Gospel, we read this. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for, notice, any cause? It's likely that they're asking Jesus what he thinks about the popular liberal view, the for-any-cause view. Jesus, do you think that the causes for divorce are as limitless as the liberals say? See, they hoped he would damage his popularity by speaking out against the majority view. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, it's because of the hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. In the words of another translation, verse 5, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. A concession is not a starting point, it's a last resort. A concession is an option you pursue when all other options have been exhausted. It comes at the tail end of all of our other attempts. A concession to hard-heartedness. One scholar points out that Jesus is probably skillfully confronting both schools of thought, liberal and conservative, at the same time and in different ways. He confronts the liberal school by flatly rejecting their any-cause view of divorce. But he also confronts the conservative school by expecting offended spouses to extend mercy instead of demanding justice. And we know this because of other contemporary conservative Jewish writings from Jesus' time that have survived down to the present day that actually demand divorce in the case of sexual immorality. But Matthew 19 seems to show Jesus merely permitting it and therefore, counterculturally, implying a need for forgiveness, whether or not the marriage union is preserved and at least implicitly encouraging reconciliation whenever possible. Jesus says, verse 5, because of your hardness of heart. Perhaps the greatest threat to the beautiful mystery of marriage for all of us is our own hard hearts. For every single person in this room, at all times, we're choosing to either harden our hearts or to let our hearts be softened by the ongoing convicting work of God's Spirit. So this is a good moment for us to ask ourselves honest questions like these. Do we always make our spouse bridge the distance 
between the two of us after a fight? Do you always look to see what you can own in any falling out, or are you laser-focused on the faults of your spouse? Do you relate to your spouse like opposing counsel in a courtroom, admitting nothing except under extreme duress? Are you contemptuous of and judgmental towards your spouse's weaknesses and failings as a fellow sinner? Can you remember the last time you looked your spouse in the eye and said, I was wrong, would you please forgive me? Are you increasingly becoming an expert on your spouse's sins while remaining a novice when it comes to your own? Do you play armchair psychologist when your spouse is stuck or hurting? Well, you're just reacting that way because you were adopted. Do you talk to other people about your spouse who are neither part of the problem nor part of the solution? You see, divorce creates at least as many problems as it solves. And what Jesus is saying here in this text is that divorce is actually a sad allowance for our brokenness. It's not a solution for our happiness. A psychologist named Dr. Judith Wallerstein, passed away in 2012, was an award-winning researcher, widely known for creating a 25-year study on the effects of divorce on children. She followed 131 children between the ages of 3 and 18 from 60 divorced families in California for 25 years, with intensive interviews conducted every Five years. What's interesting is that the initial plan was to only interview those 131 children once a year after the divorce. She explains why. We didn't question at the time the commonly held assumption that divorce was a short-lived crisis. But when we conducted follow-up interviews a year to a year and a half later, we found, to our surprise, most families still in crisis. Their wounds were wide open. Our findings were absolutely contradictory to our expectations. So what was intended to be only a one-year study turned into a 25-year study, painfully documenting in detail the unending havoc and heartache unleashed by those 60 divorces. And these were all divorces of well-to-do, upper-middle-class families with resources and money and established careers, Listen to just a few of the things that the parents and the children they interviewed shared with them at the 10-year mark, at the 10-year mark. One half of the women and one-third of the men reported to being still intensely angry at their former spouses despite the passage of a decade. And only one in seven of the former couples did the former wife and husband experience stable second marriages. The children as a whole, felt intense loneliness. Quote, divorce is an acute, painful, long-remembered experience that children must often negotiate with a sense that they're alone in the world. Even when children are encouraged not to take sides, they often feel they must. However, when they do take sides to feel more protected, they also feel despair because they're betraying one parent over the other. And if they don't take sides, they feel isolated and disloyal To both parents, there's no solution to their dilemma. Wallerstein 
quote, was surprised to discover that the severity of a child's reactions at the time of their parents' divorce in no way predicts how that child will fare 5, 10, and even 15 years later. One cannot predict long-term effects of divorce on children from how they react at the outset. Ultimately, Wallerstein and her team concluded that all 131 children of those 60 divorces held two traits in common, fear, rejection, and betrayal, and a lifelong vulnerability to the experience of loss. Wallerstein described what she called the sleeper effect, the sleeper effect on girls who seem to come through their parents' divorce pretty well, but who then face serious inner problems in their late teens and early 20s. And these young women said things like, I'm so afraid I'm going to marry somebody like my dad. One woman interviewed at age 25 said she wished to belong to somebody anybody, but she feared that if she depended on or belonged to somebody, quote, he's going to let me down like my dad let me down. Strikingly, in that same interview with Vogue that Adele gave this month, notice what she says about the impact of her own parents' divorce on her shortly after she was born, leaving her mother to raise her alone, to become estranged from her father who then made money off her by selling a story about her to a newspaper without her permission, and who recently died of cancer. She says, My therapist told me I had to sit with my little seven-year-old self, because she was left on her own. And I needed to go sit with her and really address how I felt when I was growing up, and issues with my dad, which I'd been avoiding. And what were those issues? Not being sure if someone, notice, who is supposed to love you, loves you and doesn't prioritize you in any capacity when you're little. You assume it, and you get used to it. So my relationship with men in general, my entire life has always been, you're going to hurt me, so I'll hurt you first. It's just toxic. It prevents me from actually finding any happiness. I wrestled with whether or not to share these heavy research results with you out of the fear that, for those of you with divorce in your past, or those of you who are facing the prospect of having divorce forced on you, that you'll fail to hear the great and glorious good news that Christ can redeem all that's broken and restore all that's lost. My intention in sharing these findings is to help us be honest as a society about the effects divorce can bring. But it doesn't mean that if you find yourself in an unsafe place that you shouldn't immediately work to secure your safety. To contact the police in case of physical danger. To contact your pastors, especially for any and all kinds of abuse. You'll be believed, you'll be received, and trust God for the outcome. I myself am standing here as living proof that the outcomes documented in that study can be powerfully thwarted through the local church. Coming around broken families to hold up their arms through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of children of divorce, loudly proclaiming their adoption as sons and daughters of the King. This is what Jesus does. He makes all things new. But it's a good reminder for us that an infidelity to one's spouse is always preceded by and is ultimately just a symptom of our infidelity to God. But again, praise God, because he's constantly at work to turn us away from our spiritual infidelity and make all of us together a faithful spouse to him. This is the story of the whole Bible. All throughout Scripture, God's followers, his people, are repeatedly described as being like the bride of Jesus, 
which he is the groom, is going to joyfully present to himself someday soon at what scripture describes as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Have you ever thought about that bizarre phrase? The wedding supper of the Lamb? The wedding supper of the Lamb combines two wildly opposite and wonderful aspects of Jesus' character in relationship to us. He's a Lamb. He suffered and sacrificed himself in our place, the lovely for the unlovely, precisely so that he might make us lovely. The groom, he made us lovely in order to throw himself a big party and present us to himself with festal joy in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when we encounter the surprising love of God in Christ like this, it starts to chip away at our hearts. It starts to slowly lead us to think about the question of divorce differently. Instead of asking, what evidence do I have to gather in order for my divorce application to get a divine stamp of approval, we find ourselves asking, how can I love and serve my spouse for Jesus' sake? And how can I bring God the most glory, especially when marriage is hard? The people of God our text shows this, should generally oppose divorce. Number one, divorce is not prescribed for God's people. But divorce is not prescribed for God's people because, two, marriage is ideally permanent for God's people. Marriage is ideally permanent for God's people. Look again at verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they're no longer two, but one flesh. Notice verse 6, from the beginning of creation. Jesus goes back before the Mosaic Law to the creation account, not to unweave the Mosaic Law, but to set it in the context of God's original good purpose and design in giving us the gift of marriage. His hearers have grabbed this ethical issue by the tail, so Jesus takes him back to the head, and he quotes Genesis 1.27, the first chapter in the entire Old Testament. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus' point here is that God intentionally made us different from each other as men and women, in part so that we might be inseparably united together in a complementary way where the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. And so husbands are not to dismiss their wives, but to hold fast to them. They're not to discard them like property, but they're to wake up to the mystical nature of the one flesh union into which God has brought them with their wives. Jonathan Grant, in his excellent book, Divine Sex, A Compelling Vision for Christian Relationships in a Hypersexualized Age, writes as follows. And if you're going to Google that book, put in the entire title. <laughs> Just a little tip there. Divine Sex. Grant writes as follows. Notice, the strong tradition of individualism in the Western world and especially in North America, has led to us placing personal freedom at the core of personal identity. What's the core of your identity as a person? Personal freedom. Each person seeking his or her own unique core of feeling, 
and intuition. And hey, although this is an individual journey, it's possible to join together with others through intuitive feeling, and so relationships can become part of this quest for personal authenticity. But despite the importance of relationships, the focus, the priority, is always on the journey of each individual self. You're alone in the universe. And if you swallow this cultural lie that personal freedom is at the center of what it means to be human, then that really means we're all just boats adrift on the water. Hey, maybe we float alongside each other for a while, but when we float apart, we can't fight it. We can only resign ourselves to it as we wake up to the realization that, well, I guess we've just drifted apart. Since there's no rudder, no sail, no motor or oars, there's really nothing we can do to bridge the distance. In this view of what it means to be a person, marriage is tenuous at best. Because when the winds shift, all we can do is wave goodbye with fatalistic resignation. It's only within this bizarre view of reality, boats adrift on the current of our own unpredictable feelings and desires that modern marriage autopsies are even intelligible. Well, we just fell out of love, I guess. If a marriage relationship is something you could fall out of, like falling out of a tree, no wonder that there's so little security and safety in marriage today. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. What Paul's saying is we're not boats drifting side by side for a time. We're in the same boat. When we withhold love and forgiveness and kindness from our spouse, when we nurse bitterness and anger and cold rage, we're drilling holes in the bottom of our own boat. Verse 8, Jesus says, So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Divorce is never prescribed for God's people. Marriage is ideally permanent for God's people. And three, we'll see here that divorce is occasionally permissible for God's people. Divorce is occasionally permissible for God's people. Look again at verses 9 through 12. Jesus says, In light of this creational intent, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And when they got back to the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together. God joins men and women together when they're married. It's not, as so many in culture think, a contemporary contract of convenience that only remains in effect as long as both parties are feeling good about what they're getting out of it. A covenant is intentionally making permanent what was not permanent, and God's intently involved and interested in the process. God's not merely at your wedding. He's active at your wedding. He's, in fact, the one doing the wedding, not the officiant. He comes to the wedding, and he welds the man and the woman together so that they become one. And what's sad is that in our age of consumerism and individual expression, we put so much weight on making the right selection for marriage that we miss the primary miracle, which is the safety of marriage. 
Imagine what approaching and viewing marriage like a contract does to people. It's exhausting. It's uncertain. It's unsafe. There's no security. Every day is an audition and never getting the part. Every day is trying out for the team and never getting to dress for the big game. That's not a love relationship. That's living your life in a foxhole on the front lines. That's a life of chronic anxiety driven by the unsettling reality that you're never going to be good enough and desirable enough to continue to hold the other person's interest and meet all their insatiable demands. I'm heartbroken by the statistics of how divorce affects particularly women in middle age. Women who divorce over 40 only have an 11% chance of being remarried. Women who divorce over 50 have only a 3% chance of being remarried, while men, their counterparts, have more than a 50% chance of being remarried. Here we see men discarding women like some kind of property they no longer have interest in and trading it in for 220s. Contract marriage is like seeing how long you can hold your breath underwater. This is why couples often silently congratulate each other whenever they finally decide to divorce. Hey, we had a good run. Seven years is pretty impressive. We obviously couldn't have kept that up forever, but not bad. But notice what Jesus does there in verses 11 and 12. He talks in the future tense about a considered course of action. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces and marries another, she, in the same way, commits adultery. He's speaking to the man or woman who's considering their options without biblical grounds for divorce. This is hard. I don't feel like doing this anymore. I want out. What are my options? Jesus says in no uncertain terms, hey, you think you're free to discard lightly your at-oneness with your spouse and simply go off and engineer a totally other at-oneness with someone else, but it will do damage to your soul. You're still in covenant with them, even if the reigning liberal views of the day have lied to you. And your feelings and emotions are not the set of paintbrushes with which you're painting your own reality, and you're not going to be turning over a new leaf or finding yourself or embracing your destiny. You'll be committing adultery. And notice again in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, it's not that a marriage covenant can't ever be dissolved over against the view that a very small minority of biblical scholars hold that nothing at all can dissolve a marriage covenant outside of death. But precisely because, contrary to God's good design, it can be dissolved, it ought not be dissolved as much as it lies within our power to preserve it. So the question arises, when is divorce permissible? In the parallel account to Mark 10 and Matthew 19, notice what else Matthew includes of Jesus' response that I think provides at least one clear example from Jesus of a kind of permissible divorce. Matthew 19, verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And so I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, notice, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Unlike Mark, Matthew's account adds an exception. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So we seem to have at least one clear instance in Scripture that divorce can be permissible in instances 
of the covenant breaking of adultery. Also, we see from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 another probable legitimate cause for divorce. Paul there seems to say that besides adultery, abandonment is also legitimate grounds for divorce. Abandonment. Notice what he says there. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God's called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? We have this additional possibility brought to us by Paul, unsurprisingly, because unlike Jesus' audience who shared a common faith heritage, Paul's writing to a pagan context where the gospels blaze through Corinth and is left behind marriages where one spouse has come to faith and the other has not. So Paul has to encourage believing spouses to not break their marriage covenants with their unbelieving spouses out of some misguided belief that the unbelieving spouse is spiritually polluting them and the kids. Notice verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Paul seems to be saying, if an unbeliever separates from you because of your conversion to Christ, and if you are not released by the covenant by their abandonment, then you would have to spend the rest of your life trying to persuade them to return, and you would, in a sense, be being held hostage by, enslaved by their refusal to honor the marriage covenant, and you would have no peace due to that ongoing chaos. So Paul says, if they abandon you, you're free. You're not enslaved. Paul also says, if you're married to a non-believer, while your faith doesn't save your spouse or your kids, your kids are sheltered by God's gracious power, and Instead of your spouse polluting you, you don't have to worry about that. You're actually positively infecting them with God's power and presence. And who knows if they might not even come to faith because of it. Again, let me say that trusted teachers and churches often disagree on these things. And there's less clarity here than on lots of other biblical topics. So we always have to carry ourselves with humility and caution. But as a group of elders here at Frontline, we believe that divorce and remarriage may be permissible in instances of adultery, abandonment, and three, abuse, while also recognizing that the only really clear and uncontroversial permission across the entire spectrum of viewpoints in Christianity that's given in Scripture for remarriage is in the case of the death of a spouse, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So, we've already covered adultery in Matthew 19. We've seen abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. And as I said, the third instance where divorce may be permissible is in cases of abuse. Now, Normally, this would be the point in my message where I would be landing the plane and getting you guys out of here. 
It's also considered bad preaching technique to mention time at all because then people start looking at their watches and thinking about what time it is. He has been talking for a long time. (laughs) But today, I think it's good and right to honor the fact that you guys have stayed with me up to this point. And because of the immense weight of this topic and the necessity of speaking comprehensively to these issues without turning you loose, we have to go a little farther, but you're going to feel it, and I'm going to feel it. And so just know, I'm so grateful for your attention. Hang in there with me as we now delve into the really light topic of abuse. (laughs) Now, what's there to be said about abuse? Abuse shares much of the same logic as abandonment, where abuse could almost be viewed as an extreme version of abandonment, where the absence of presence and support is found in the presence of violence and evil. Now I want you to look again at verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7. Notice what Paul says there in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7. If the unbelieving partner separates, notice, let it be so, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. That's the only time in the entire New Testament that the phrase, in such cases, occurs, which makes it difficult to interpret and translate from its context. One scholar due to software that was pioneered at UC Irvine over the last 30 or 40 years that has now converted into digital form, all the Greek literature spanning hundreds of years on either side of Paul's writing, used that software to look up 617 instances of extra-biblical usage of this phrase in such cases. And while it's not a slam dunk, what's interesting is that his research shows the phrase in such cases could very likely not mean what's been typically assumed by commentators. In only this case, cases of desertion by an unbeliever, but rather in any cases that have similarly destroyed a marriage covenant. So in other words, we may have plain textual support from Scripture where Paul may be saying, you're free if your spouse abandons you, just as you're free in other instances similar to abandonment that do equal damage to the marriage covenant. So, This not only seems to offer textual support for abuse as legitimate grounds, but it also appeals to common sense on a certain level. If abuse by an unbelieving spouse forces the abused spouse to flee the home for self-protection, then the abuser has caused separation, just as much as if he or she had deserted the marriage, and the result would be the same as desertion, no longer living together. Makes sense. This is an argument made as recently as contemporary theologian John Frame and made as early as 4th century church father John Chrysostom. Now, a word to those who are wondering if maybe they're in an abusive relationship. Darby Strickland has been counseling victims of abuse for 25 years now, recently published a landmark book entitled, Is It Abuse? A Biblical Guide to Identifying Domestic Abuse and helping victims. And she does a deep dive into every imaginable form of abuse, spiritual, emotional, physical, and so on. And she offers a ton of wisdom for both victims and helpers. Listen to what she has to say to us. Strickland, if she were here today, would say that if you're here today and you're wondering if you're a victim of abuse, then that means that you need safety and guidance and help. You probably already feel yourself wanting to talk to your pastors about what you're enduring, And you should. And yet at the same time, you might be afraid that you're not going to be believed. You will. Again, if you're in any physical danger of any kind, 
Romans 13 reminds us that God puts civil authorities in place to protect the vulnerable and punish wrongdoers. So where appropriate, call the police first and call your pastors second. Some of you, again, are wondering how to know whether or not you're in an abusive relationship. It's normal to feel confused and unsure about the answer to that question. The good news is that the more that you invite wise and trusted helpers into your story, and the more that they listen, the clearer things will become. This is what happens. Wise helpers step in, and they work to verify what they hear, and when it's possible to safely follow up with the oppressor, clarity can be gained by listening for the presence of entitlement in their words and attitude. Are they concerned about their own sin, or are they just fixated on their spouses? You see, those with civil or spiritual authority, like a pastor or a police officer, need to use it wisely and justly. We have a serious responsibility. And so that gives us all the more incentive to get it right, to properly understand you and your situation. Churches that care well in these situations are churches that work in partnership with authorities, with other skilled helpers, and they take the time necessary to understand the mentality of oppressors, to engage in a process of protecting victims, immediately working to secure their safety, while at the same time pursuing oppressors' deep-seated self-worship problem whenever possible. Strickland concludes by pointing out that whether or not your spouse's sin rises to the level of abuse, you don't have to answer that question immediately. It's always right and good to name if you're enduring evil at the hands of your spouse. The Bible never shies away from calling sin, sin. We don't have to wait for definitive clarity that something's abuse in order to call out destructive and recurring sin patterns in a marriage and to weep for the extensive damage that it has done to the vulnerable spouse. Victims need to know that what they're enduring goes against God's design. They need to know that they're right to be in agony because of what's happened to them. So, while it's okay for us to wait before labeling something as abuse until we're sure that it truly is, we've got to immediately and actively engage sins and suffering when they're staring us in the face. So if you're here today, if you're here today and you're suffering silently, I want to encourage you. Invite this spiritual family into the hidden sins and sorrows of your marriage. By God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, you won't regret taking that vulnerable step. Now, as it relates to all the things we've talked about, it goes without saying that to make any life-changing decision connected to as weighty a topic as divorce and remarriage, we're all going to need at least open Bibles, elders appointed by the Spirit to help us apply doctrine and shepherd us toward Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ, honesty about our own biases, and teachable hearts. If, as we've seen, the very purpose of marriage is about Jesus winning his bride, then our posture towards divorce and remarriage should always focus on reconciliation whenever possible, repentance for where we've sinned, forgiveness for our spouse. Fourth thing that we'll consider as we close is this, that while divorce is occasionally permissible for God's people. Fourth and finally, remarriage should give pause to God's people. Remarriage should give pause to God's people. In part because the Bible has very little to say about remarriage. Understandably, 
Because the Bible is usually taking great pains to protect marriage and to discourage divorce. So there's no explicit passage of scripture, unfortunately, that lays out principles for remarriage per se. Most immediately, whatever your background or history, if you're sitting here in the sound of my voice, and if you're married right now, there's an invitation from the Lord to strengthen and maintain that covenant with diligence and devotion as much as it lies within you. If you've been divorced and you're unsure if you're free to remarry, come talk to us. We'll do our best to help you discern the answer. Assuming you're biblically free to remarry, I would like to say two things to you, even though there's so much we can't say here. First, in my experience, people who say they just want out of their bad marriage and have no interest in remarriage, so in their mind it's not something they need to consider how to approach wisely, are being naive. Desires for remarriage can come much quicker and more intensely than you might expect, especially when you're suddenly being treated well by somebody after years of relational deprivation in a prior relationship. Secondly, a common mistake people make, even if they are biblically free to remarry, is rushing into marriage far too quickly without having first done the deep work of grieving, reflecting, receiving counsel and care. If you desire to remarry and you're biblically free to do so, you don't need to feel doomed to failure just because second marriages statistically fail 70% of the time. You have the grace of Jesus. You have the power of the Spirit, but you should do everything in your power to move really slowly. Be really deliberate. Approach the process communally, precisely so that you don't become just another statistic. If you want remarriage to stick, don't go fast and don't go alone. A final question that some of you may be wondering is, what should I do if I realize that I have divorced unbiblically and therefore remarried unbiblically according to the teaching of Jesus? The answer is simple and yet profound. You should fully repent of any sins surrounding the prior divorce, including, if possible, seeking the forgiveness of the person you've abandoned and wronged and broken covenant with. And far beyond anything that you can imagine, it'll be healing for both of you. And then you should remain committed to your current marriage. If you do truly confess your sin, and if you do fully and faithfully fulfill the marriage vows of your current marriage, you should not be seen by anybody as living in sin, but rather as someone who, just like every other person in the room, has sinned, confessed by God's grace, been forgiven, and are now empowered to follow God in your present marriage. Again, in conclusion, divorce is never prescribed for God's people. Marriage is ideally permanent for God's people. Divorce is occasionally permissible for God's people, and remarriage should always give pause to God's people. Stand with me.